Well, good morning. Morning, morning, morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. Uh, we're thankful that you have joined here this morning, joined this morning with us. The gathering of God's saints is the highlight of my week. Uh, I pray it is for you as well. I know for me, I need the encouragement of the fellowship. I need the encouragement of the prayer together, the music, and ultimately of the Word of God. You know, God has designed us for fellowship. He has designed us to to be together and, and to come together as one body. Jesus says as much in his high priestly prayer of John 17, he says in John 17, 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And he goes on to say, the glory which you have given me, I I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved have loved me. You see, the Lord Jesus wants wants us to be unified. He wants us to be one in the Spirit. The Apostle Paul said much the same thing in Ephesians 2.20, he told the, the, the Ephesian church that they are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The idea is, is there's a oneness in the Spirit as we come together. In Colossians 10-14, through 14, he tells the the Colossian church, to put on the new self, have, uh, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, and a renewal that, in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, bar- barbarian, Scythian, slave or freeman, cr- but Christ is all in all. The idea, again, the idea there is that we are one in Christ, and that there is, there is no distinction anymore. Uh, yes, there's diversity, but there is no distinction. Uh, beloved, the point is, is our uni- unity is a big deal. You know, last week I brought up, and the, this pre-sermon comments, I brought up the abortion battle in the Supreme Court. You know, I don't have a desire to be political, but we must re- recognize the attacks on the church coming from the political realm. And we cannot be unaware of them. I'll give you a case in point. Uh, I have a friend in California who preached a sermon in the last couple of weeks on the Sixth Commandment, which says, Thou shalt not kill. In that sermon, he applied God's commandment to abortion. Like us, their body uses Facebook to live stream their services, and they all, but they also use Facebook advertising to get word out. And as a result, local activists, uh, my understanding, will be actually protesting at their building this Sunday because of that sermon. Because he preached a sermon on thou shalt not kill, in which he applied that to abortion. Uh, Chris is his name, Pastor Chris, even received a package of coat hangers with a note saying, enjoy your gift of wire hangers, abortion is health care. Banning abortion stops safe abortions. Safe, Safe for the mother maybe, but not safe for the child, obviously. And then he goes on to say, you're a dirtbag, and you're going to hell from your good friend Benedict, end quote. 
Here's my point. In a culture built, bent on murderous actions, we have a target on our back. That's the point. Therefore, if we're going to stand in the crosshairs, if you're going to stand for biblical truth, then we must stand in unity. That's, that's what we need to understand. The, the Apostle Paul paints this picture in Ephesians 6 where he states that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but our struggle is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. As I prayed earlier, as I prayed earlier, the, the world is lost. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They don't know what they're doing. They think they're right. They think that they're correct in attacking the church in, in these areas. And we must stand in unity. He goes on to, Paul goes on to say he commanded the church to take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The picture here is of a phalanx where the shields, these shields come together. They come together as one to protect the body from the flaming arrows that are coming at us. We are to come together as, as a church in unity as these flaming arrows come. Now, with the critical nature of unity in mind, I want us to dive back into, as we finish this series from Philemon that we have called, or I've entitled, How to Be a Forgiving Church. Now, we learned last week that God's forgiveness of us leads us to reconciliation with Him. So God forgives us of our sins, but, but He doesn't just forgive us. He doesn't just relieve us of the guilt that we have. He also creates a, a relationship with us. We, we come to know Him in, a, in an intimate relationship. So for God's forgiveness leads to a relationship in the same way. In the same way, our forgiveness of the brethren, those who have, who have wronged us potentially, those who we have, have conflict with, our forgiveness of them, uh, their forgiveness of us, leads to reconciliation. If we are serious about unity in the body of Christ, we must take forgiveness and reconciliation seriously. This is really the story behind Paul's letter to Philemon. And why we're taking the time over the past few weeks to, to study it. So with that, let me pray. And then we'll read the text and we'll jump, jump into this letter as we finish it up today. By the, way, by the way, I think there may be running bets of whether or not we'll actually finish today. And, and I, unless, unless the Lord wills that we don't, we will finish Philemon today. So if you, bet it, if you have bet against me, not that I'm condoning betting and gambling, but... You get the point. But if you bet against me, uh, yeah, I'm sorry to say that you're probably going to lose that one. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We praise you. Father, I, Lord, my heart is to guide this church according to your word. Lord, we know that if we stand for biblical truth, if we take a stand on the truth of the Word of God, that we necessarily will stand against the world. That we will attract the flaming arrows of the evil one. Lord, we know that. We know that there is going to be, there is this great spiritual battle that's going on 
even right now. Lord, we pray that we would take up the shield of faith. That we would be unified. That we would stand together as one in unity. And we realize, we recognize, Lord, that it takes forgiveness and reconciliation when there are perceived wrongs that are done. Father, I pray that as a church, that we truly would strive to be a forgiving church. And that not only would we forgive, not only would we say, oh, it's no big deal. No, we would do further than that. We would do like the Apostle Paul. And we would truly want to have reconciliation. We would follow your pattern in not only relieving us of guilt, but Lord, pursuing a relationship. Father, we thank you and praise you this morning for this little book of Philemon. Father, we pray that you would be glorified. You have been glorified and you will be glorified through the preaching of your word. And that I would, as your preacher, that I would preach with clarity this morning. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to read the entire letter of Philemon. You may follow along, along in your word, your copy of God's word. The Apostle Paul writes, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, my brother, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God, my God, always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have, you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I've, I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, whom formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person. That is, sending my very heart, whom I wished to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For, for perhaps it was, he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but much more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord, if then you would regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if, you, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention that you 
to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more, even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare for me a, a, a lodging. For I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. As do Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now before we dive into our passage, I want to briefly summarize the first three sermons of this series. In doing so, I encourage you to listen to those sermons if you've not done so. In this letter, the Apostle Paul models four ways to be a forgiving church. In the first sermon, we saw that we must be a church marked by Christian fellowship. That's, that's verses 1 through 3. And, but to be a church marked by Christian fellowship, we must then relate to one another in, in humility. In Philemon 1, Paul relates to the, uh, his brethren as beloved brothers and sisters and as fellow workers. In other words, Paul didn't assert his authority as an apostle. And we'll see that theme throughout this letter. Also, if we want to be a forgiving church, we must realize the importance of fellowship. In Philemon 2, Paul talks about this church and the church that the church in Colossae that, that gathered in the, the house of Philemon. You see, Paul recognized the importance of the Colossians' fellowship. He knew that forgiveness and reconciliation was key to ensuring peace within the body of Christ. Lastly, to be a church marked by Christian fellowship, we must recognize the role of grace. Paul ends the introduction of this letter by saying grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. God then has saved us by grace. Therefore, we must recognize how God has graciously treated us and we must then do that same thing to others. That's the first sermon. In the second sermon, we saw the second of four ways to be a forgiving church. We must be a church made up of authentic believers. And now to be a church made up of authentic believers, we should be known, you should be known for your faith in Christ. So as a church, we should be known by our faith. And Paul says in Philemon 4, he says, I, because I hear of the love, your love, and faith. Now we saw when we went through this sermon, we saw that it is the, the faith, true faith, that produces love, the, the love that we have toward the Lord Jesus and the love that we have toward all the saints. Therefore, secondly, we must be known for, you must be known or should be known for your love for the saints. And Paul says as much in Philemon 5 again. He says that, that they must be known for their love. Thirdly, we must be known, you should be known for your spiritual fruit. That's verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, he says, he says that, that he is, he, 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 he says that, it, that he prays that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. And then he says, I have come to have joy and, and comfort in your love. That's the spiritual fruit that is, that is born out of knowing Christ. Now last week we looked at the third of four ways Paul models to, to, to be, how, how to be a forgiving church. We must be a church measured by genuine forgiveness and reconciliation. 
That is verses 8 through 20. Now, in verses 8 through 20, Paul models five different actions that will help achieve genuine forgiveness and reconciliation with your, with your brethren. First, you should, when there's conflict, when there's difficulty with the brethren, first, you should lovingly appeal to your brother. Uh, this, again, this is review. Then uh, Philemon 8, uh, 8 and 9, he, sa- he says, basically says, or he does say, Therefore, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I appeal to you. Quite simply, Paul could have asserted his authority as an apostle. He could have even appealed to what God teaches about forgiveness and ordered Philemon to obey. But he chose to lovingly appeal. In conflict, we should follow Paul in in lovingly appealing to our brethren. Paul's loving appeal then necessitated that he model the second of five actions to be a church measured by genuine forgiveness and reconciliation with your brethren. You should then humbly approach your brother. That's verses 10 and 11. In those verses, in those verses, well, back in verse 9 though, Paul told Philemon that he was an old man who was in chains for the sake of the gospel. He had great need. He had faced many incredible trials for his, for his Lord. We can only imagine the pain that he endured. You see, Onesimus had been born again under Paul's ministry, gospel ministry. He became Paul's child in the faith. He had come to greatly depend upon Onesimus, who was useless to Philemon, but had become useful to Paul. This shows great humility on Paul's part. He could have ordered Philemon to do what is right, but he chose to appeal to him from the perspective of weakness. He knew it. He knew that forgiveness and, and reconciliation were greater needs than even his own needs. In that situation, in this situation, Paul modeled Philippians 2.3, which says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. You see, he saw that uh, uh, he saw Philemon and Onesimus and their relationship as being more important than his own personal needs, which were great, because of the situation that he found himself being in prison for the gospel's sake, a prisoner of Christ, as he as he calls himself. In times of conflict, we need to find ways not only to love the other person, but we need to find ways to act in humility. Regarding uh, our brothers and sisters, we need, to, we need to see them as more important than ourselves. Look back at your text in Philemon 12, where Paul models the third of five different actions to be a church measured by genuine forgiveness and reconciliation with your brethren. You should justly agree with your brother. Not only lovingly approach, not only humbly approach, but justly agree with them. And that's verses 12 through 14. And Paul chose to send Onesimus back to Philemon, even though, he had, even though Onesimus had become incredibly dear to him. He had, the text says he had intended to keep him so that, so that Onesimus could minister to him in Philemon's absence, but he didn't want to do it because he didn't want Philemon to be coerced in any way. Therefore, he was giving Philemon the opportunity to do what was right. Amazingly, Amazingly, referring to these verses, Paul, Moses says in Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 and 16, you shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it, is, where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. I would argue, I argued in, in that sermon, 
that Paul could have appealed to Moses in, in principle and kept Onesimus. But he appealed, Paul appeals to the law of love that true justice would be served because of Philemon's faith in Christ. You see, Paul understood that Philemon, he, he understood that Philemon had true faith in Christ, therefore he could send him back, and he knew that Philemon would uh, treat him according to the law, the law of Christ. Great confidence in that way. Beloved, when you have conflict with others, you should follow Paul's model by finding ways to justly agree according to the law of Christ. This leads us to the fourth of five actions, and this is all that's been reviewed. Now, this is new material going forward. This leads us to the fourth of five actions modeled by Paul to be a church measured by genuine forgiveness and reconciliation. You should righteously ask your brother. That's verses 15 and 16. So, now, look at your text in verse 15. Paul writes, For perhaps he was, for this reason, separated from you for a while. Now, this first phrase points back to Paul's desire for Philemon to make the right decision of his own free will. The verb, fascinatingly, the verb translated separated is what theologians call the divine passive. In other words, Paul is asking, this is the question, that by, by using this tense, this is the question he's asking. What if God is the orchestrator of each event leading up to this moment? See, Onesimus' uselessness and poor behavior as Philemon's slave, Onesimus' choice to run away from Philemon, quite possibly stealing from him in the process, his choice to flee to Rome where he providentially ran into Paul and his companions, and then the salvation, his miraculous salvation after hearing the gospel from Paul. Not only that, but the complete change from being useless to Philemon to being useful from not having Christ to being in Christ or being a good Christian. Not only that, but God orchestrated Paul's relationship with Onesimus. He orchestrated Paul's intention to keep Onesimus to serve him in Rome. He also, God orchestrated the realization that it was the just thing to do in sending him back. Not only that, but he orchestrated, this is God orchestrated Onesimus' willingness to return to Philemon. You see, the point is, is that every detail had been providentially arranged by our sovereign God. And I would argue that this is true even down to Philemon and Onesimus' name. Philemon means affectionate one. And Onesimus, as we've said many times, means useful. When all is said and done, I would argue that they will both live up to their names. That, that Philemon will show affection toward Onesimus and that Onesimus truly is a useful man. Paul's words in Romans 8.28 come to mind. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Also, Joseph's words in, in Genesis 50-20 apply these to Onesimus' action. As for you, you meant evil against me, but, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. That was Joseph 
But in this situation, Onesimus, he didn't mean it good to leave. He left for evil intentions. He ran away from Philemon uh, for evil intentions, yet God used it for good. Friends, it's not hard to see that our Lord used all these details for the good of Philemon, Onesimus, and Paul. He put them in exactly the place He wanted them to be. And He did it for the good not only of Onesimus and Philemon and Paul, but for the rest of the church because the church was witnessing all of these actions and they knew exactly what they were doing. Or God knew exactly what, they, what, what He was doing, that is. And it's easy to see that God gets all the glory for the grand results. We will spend, get this, I want you to get this, we will spend eternity praising our Lord for every minute detail that He has brought to pass for our good and His glory. Every minute, minute detail. I hope that that is what your, I hope your theology points you in that direction. That our Lord is providential over every detail of your life and that you will spend eternity praising Him for what He's brought to pass. Look back at your text in Philemon 15. It says, For perhaps for this reason, He was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have Him back forever. Paul, of course, is referring to Onesimus and, and Philemon and the fact that they are both in Christ. Therefore, they, are, they, are, they, will be, they will reign together forever in Christ. They are both raised up and seated uh, in Him, is what Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 2. They're reigning together, and they'll reign together with Christ forever. Look back at your text in verse 16. Paul writes, no longer as a slave, but, but much more, but more than a slave. A beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Here, here's the amazing part. This is, this is what's incredible. We see things as they are. We see things, we see things that we, that, that we can see, that we can, that, that we can perceive with our, with our senses. Even though Onesimus was legally a slave. He is now much more than a slave. He is a beloved brother in Christ. Now, I can't say with absolute certainty that Paul wants Philemon to release him as a slave. Yet, I would argue that, that Paul actually doesn't make slavery itself the issue. It's clear that Paul is calling on Philemon to treat Onesimus as one of the beloved brethren, no matter his station in life. You see, that new spiritual relationship that they have transcends the legal relationship they had before. Far outweighs it. Paul's exhortation is that Philemon treat Onesimus as a beloved brother for righteousness' sake. Church, you have to get the critical importance of this. You see, being in Christ is a far greater reality than any station of life here on this earth. It is a far greater reality. You see, Philemon's relationship with Onesimus had, had completely changed even if their earthly status does not. Even if, if Onesimus remains a slave, 
if he remains in that legal relationship, even if he does, the, the situation is completely transformed because of their new spiritual relationship. This is the heart behind Paul's words in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Going back to that idea of unity we talked about earlier. Churches, as Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven. I mean, that's, that far outweighs any situation that you might find yourself here on the earth. Paul understood the far greater reality of our relationships in Christ. Therefore, he asked, he asked Philemon to treat Onesimus according to righteousness. It's interesting to note that the new relationship in Christ does actually change the reality of their relationship in the flesh. Notice that Paul says that Onesimus had become a beloved brother both in the flesh and in the Lord. See, no matter their, their legal status, no matter the situation, Onesimus had now become a beloved brother now and forever. You have to see that. In times of conflict with our brethren, the question is, do we recognize the transcendent relationships that we have in Christ. When we, when we knock heads, so to speak, are we thinking through, are we thinking through uh, the, the fact that we have this far greater transcendent relationship? Another question. Do you use your earthly position to lord over others? I think of marriages. Husbands, do you lord over your wives? Or do you recognize that they're fellow heirs of grace of the grace of life? Another question is, parents, do you lord over your children? Fathers, are you provoking your children to anger? For those of you who have employees, do you lord over your employees as a master over your slaves? Do you appeal to the righteousness of Christ or do you self-righteously desire to have your own way? That's, that's in, in conflict, the, 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 the tendency is to think, I know what's right. And to appeal to what you think is right. And to be self-righteous about it. This leads us to the fifth and final action modeled by Paul to be a church measured by genuine forgiveness and reconciliation. You should selflessly accommodate your brother. You should selflessly, selflessly accommodate your brother. Look at verse 17. Paul writes, If you then regard me, if then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. Uh, the word here translated partner has the idea of fellowship. Uh, specifically fellowship in a common faith. Paul is stating the reality that he and Philemon are joined together in fellowship by a common faith in Christ. Yet the construction uh, of the sentence suggests that Paul wants Philemon to acknowledge this truth for himself. And, and when he does so, he wants Philemon to treat or to accept Onesimus in the same way. 
literally accepts Onesimus the same way he would Paul. Now you think about that for a moment. Here, Paul is an apostle. And he's telling, he's telling Philemon to treat Onesimus, who's a slave, the same, in the same manner. It's incredible. It's incredible. Look at verse 18. It says, but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now, as I have alluded to, this quite possibly means that Onesimus stole from Philemon when he ran away. Stole something of value. At the very least, Paul has reason to believe that Philemon has felt wronged by Onesimus and, and even possibly by Paul himself. Now, I would argue that Paul's offer of payment gives Philemon a way out. Gives him a way out. He could have easily called in Paul's suggestion of restitution for the amount owed. He could have easily said, all right, I'll take the money. Had, had Philemon taken him up on it, he would have saved face, at least, saved face at least in a worldly way. It would have, it would have shown that the account was, was settled and, and nothing was owed by Onesimus or even Paul. Now, this offer should remind you of Jesus' death on the cross, which paid our debts and redeemed us from, uh, I, I would argue, from the slave market of sin. In like manner, Paul willingly offered to pay anything that Onesimus owed uh, to, to Philemon. Look at verse 19. It says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention that you, to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Here Paul is emphasizing the fact that he, he and he alone, will repay anything, anything owed to Philemon. In effect, this is Paul's promissory, promissory note. He's saying, I will do it. I, I've signed it with my own hand. Again, he's reiterating that he will pay, repay any losses incurred by Philemon. Now look at the last phrase in the verse. It says, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Clearly, Paul wants Philemon to recognize that, that, that he owes, that, that Philemon owes Paul even eternal life. That's not to say that, that Paul is saying he's directly responsible for saving Philemon. We obviously are saved by grace through faith. But it is, it's to remind Philemon that it was Paul who preached the gospel in, in the face of great persecution. He, he preached the gospel and Philemon was saved by Christ through that ministry that Paul was given by Christ. And, and so, so he wants him to, to remember what Paul had done. Now, Paul's words here are, are interesting, or at least his choice of how he says it. Most of us have used this rhetorical device. We may say something to our children like, now I'm not going to mention that I did this chore for you all week last week, you know, when they're complaining. Or, I've, we've said this in our house. We're not going to mention that, that we pay for your gas. In the words of one commentator, Philemon is turned from creditor to debtor in the space of two verses. And he's loaded with a debt so large, his very own self, that he is under, the, under limitless obligation to Paul. Paul, Paul didn't see the point is Paul didn't need to offer to pay Philemon, but he offered to do it nonetheless. 
And I would argue that this is a real offer that Paul knew that he would never have to pay. And the reason he knew he would never have to pay it is because he had seen Philemon's faith demonstrated by the way that he lives. He had seen Philemon live out his faith in this church, and so Paul knew that he would never have to pay this debt because he had so much confidence in in what Philemon would do, because he had confidence that Philemon's faith was true, that it was a true faith, and he has confidence in his Lord that, that Philemon would do what was right. Look at verse 20. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Now this is, this is the closing line of the, of the body of this epistle. In this, in this verse, he, he reiterates three key words that he's used from the beginning of this letter. In verse 7, he addressed Philemon, his brother. And in that same verse, he reminded Philemon that the hearts of the saints had been refreshed through him. And so here in verse 20, Paul is summing up all that he has said going from the beginning. And, and he's, giving, he's giving Philemon an opportunity to refresh his heart in the Lord. Now, Paul may actually even be using a play on words here. The Greek word translated benefit is very close to Onesimus. So in effect, Paul could be saying, You, Philemon, if you do what is right, you will be Onesimus to me. You will be be useful to me. You see, in the past, Philemon had proven to be a selfless man. He only needed Paul to remind him of all that he ultimately owed in Christ, or to Christ. And in bringing these things to to the forefront, Paul was selfless in his willingness to accommodate Philemon, his beloved brother. You see, he wanted Philemon to weigh the consequences of taking him up on his offer of payment. The temporal gain in gaining some little bit of money paled in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. Failed in comparison. In times of conflict. I can't say this enough. In times of conflict, are you willing to find ways to selflessly accommodate your brother or sister in Christ? Paul didn't have to offer. He didn't have to offer, but but he did. I think it was a very real offer. And I think he would have paid it. I think he would have paid it. Paul could have ordered him to do what was right. And yet, he was willing to selflessly accommodate. Are you even willing to give up material possessions to make the situation right? Are you willing to do that? When you feel that you've been wronged by others, do you recognize that eternal matters have far greater value than the earthly and material? Well, we've seen as a uh, we've seen that we must be a church marked by Christian fellowship, made up of authentic believers. Measured by genuine forgiveness. Let's briefly look at the last way to be a forgiving church. We must be a church motivated by confident obedience. We must be a church motivated by confident obedience. Now in these last few verses, 
In these last few verses, in verses 21 through 25, Paul models two ways. Two ways to display true forgiveness and reconciliation. First, you must place your confidence in the works of faith. And second, you must personify forgiveness and reconciliation with the brethren. So let's look at the first way. You must place your confidence in the works of faith. These go quickly. For those who are continuing to bet against me. Look at verse 21. Paul writes, Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do more, even more than what I say. Now in, that, in the first phrase, Paul uses a, a verb tense. It's the perfect if you, for you Greek scholars out there. Uh, that shows that his confidence is based on Philemon's past actions. He, he, you see, Paul has, has witnessed, he has heard of uh, Paul, uh, Philemon's past works of faith. Those past works of obedient faith give Paul great confidence that, that Philemon will obey Christ in doing what is right. Douglas Moo, a commentator on this, commentator on this book or this epistle, calls this the gospel imperative. You see, Paul may not have used his personal authority as an apostle to tell Philemon what to do, but he definitely appealed to the general demand to obey Christ. In other places, Paul calls this the obedience of faith. In Romans 1, he says that, that we have received grace and an apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for His name's sake. In this in this epistle, in Philemon, Paul has placed his full confidence in the outworking of Philemon's faith. I think it's worth noting that if Philemon disobeyed and goes against Paul, that that may be an indication that Philemon's faith is even a dead faith. Paul had much more confidence than that. And James says in James 2.26, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. But Paul had confidence in Philemon. He knew that Philemon would do even more. Look at your text. He knew that he would do even more. Even more than what he said. In other words, Philemon would exceed Paul's request. Paul had this confidence because he had witnessed all that the Lord had accomplished through Philemon. Paul knew that Philemon would excel still more. Look at your text in verse 22. This is fascinating. Paul writes, at the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. This is interesting. This is a very practical result of Paul's confidence. I, I, would, I would argue that Paul is so confident that Philemon would do what is right that he and that he would excel in doing it, he simply says, I want to come and stay with you. I mean, again, you can't, we can't over, overstate the, the potential for this conflict to, to rip this church apart. And Paul is so confident in what Philemon is going to do, he's saying, look, I want to be in your home where I can be blessed by, you, by your love for the saints. Paul was motivated to protect the fellowship he had with Philemon in the Colossian church. You see, let me put it this way. He could have avoided this subject until things were worked out, right? I mean, he could have, been, he could have held himself aloof and, and said, you know, let's, let me wait and see. 
No, he is so confident that he's saying, I want to I be with you in your home. I want to be refreshed by you. He chose to continue as if the conflict was fully in the rearview mirror. Now, I want to remind you that Paul expected this letter to be read to the entire church. So Paul's actions show confidence in the genuineness of Philemon's faith. You can't miss this. He, he is so certain of what Philemon would do that that letter would be written and, and that at the end of the day, Philemon would do what is right and they would continue in fellowship, they would continue in being brothers, and they would continue loving each other because of the faith that they both had. He's saying to the church, I'm so confident in the faith of Philemon that I'm willing to make future plans solely based on it. Now, it's interesting. In verse 22, when, it's, when he says, For I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. The pronouns in that last phrase are actually plural. He's speaking to the church. This proves that, that Paul again has the entire church in mind as he makes this final encouragement to Philemon. It's absolutely astounding. It's fascinating to me. Paul Paul placed his confidence in the genuineness of Philemon's faith and he put his name on the line for that letter to be read in front of the church and that Philemon would do exactly like he needed to do according to the Lord's wishes. The question is, as you endure, as you endure conflict with others, do you place your confidence in the genuineness of their faith? Or do you tend to demonize them? You know how we do that, right? We, we get in conflict with someone and we think the worst of them. We all tend to do it. Even, even in times, another, another question, even in times of intense conflict, are you motivated to protect the fellowship that you have with the brethren? Or do you, or do you retreat into your shell at the, first, at the first sign of trouble? See, Paul's not doing that. Paul's saying, brother, I want to come stay with you. I want to be with you. Paul could have held himself aloof and said, well, I, you know, I need to wait and see if this is all going to work out. But he didn't do that. Let's look at the second practical way to display true forgiveness and reconciliation. You must personify forgiveness and reconciliation. And this is absolutely fascinating, this, this section. Look back at your text in verse 23. In these, in these verses, Paul shows his heart for fellowship with the brethren. And, and, and in, this, in these verses, he, he names names. There's, there's several familiar names of the men whom he calls his fellow prisoner in one case and fellow workers in other cases. Now, Epaphras, we have learned earlier, Epaphras was saved during Paul's ministry in, in Ephesus. He was from Colossa, and he had returned to Colossa, so he was saved in Ephesus, and he had returned to Colossa to plant the church there, and the church that we were speaking of. Paul refers to him as his fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Most likely, this meant that Epaphras had been imprisoned for the sake of the gospel as well. Later, Revelation tells us that Demas famously left Paul because he, was, he, had lo he loved this present world. That's 2 Timothy 4.10. Uh, 
Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke was Paul's beloved companion. He, as, as you know, he meticulously wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts as an account of the ministries of Jesus and the apostles. Now, you may have noticed that I skipped a name, if you're looking at your text. Mark. Otherwise known as John Mark. This is a very, very interesting New Testament character. He wrote the Gospel of Mark. He may have even been the disciple who fled naked at Jesus' arrest, according to Mark 14, 15, 51 and 52. He was the cousin of Barnabas, according to Colossians 4.10. He's also the son of the woman whose house Christians met in, in Jerusalem. That's Acts 12.12. 12. Now, perhaps more significantly than all that, he was one whom Paul and Barnabas sharply over whom Paul and Barnabas sharply disagreed as they planned to set out on Paul's second missionary journey. Now, that's in Acts, Acts 15. In that disagreement, Paul insisted that they should not take John Mark because he had previously deserted them. But Barnabas, on the other hand, wanted to take him on the journey. This conflict led to their separation. Now, the text actually refers to it as a, as a sharp disagreement. So, I mean, this was no small matter. And, and therefore, they, they separated, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. That's Acts 15.40. Now, here's the point. <clears throat> I bring it up because this disagreement was probably widely known in Paul's circles. So you can, you can almost guarantee that the church at Colossae would have understood and would have known about this separation. They would have known about this disagreement. So by bringing Mark up as a fellow worker, he showed that he himself, and this is important, he himself had worked through forgiveness and reconciliation with another brother. That one word, that one name, clearly showed that Paul had been down this road himself. And it shows that the goal of forgiveness is in fact reconciliation. The restoration of fellowship. And that's exactly what he's arguing with Philemon and saying, or arguing not with him, but argue, his argument is with Philemon is that this is, this is important because it's all about fellowship. It's all about Christian fellowship. Ultimately, it's all about unity. You see, Paul had come to see Mark's usefulness and had forgiven him for his desertion. Therefore, Mark had become a trusted companion. At the, end, at the very end of Paul's life, he proclaimed that Mark was a useful man in ministry. That's 2 Timothy 4.11. He says, only Luke is with me, and he says this, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. What an incredible testimony of forgiveness and reconciliation that, that Paul himself, Paul himself had demonstrated. And by including that one name, he's telling Philemon, look, I have walked down this same road myself. 
brother, you need to do what is right. You see, brethren, conflict with others is inevitable. Even the great Apostle Paul. Even the great Apostle Paul had conflict. Had conflict with others. We clearly see on the pages of, of the New Testament conflict in the lives of Jesus' disciples. I was asked the question over the last few days, I was asked the question, is, is there always conflict in the church? Absolutely there's conflict in the church. There is great conflict in the church. That's why, that's why in Ephesians 6, that's why it says take up the full armor of God because we're getting attacked all the time. And there's conflict in the church, whether within or without, and, and there's conflict coming, and we have to know how to deal with it. As you encounter conflict, do you do all that you can do to ensure forgiveness and reconciliation? Paul separated from Barnabas following a sharp disagreement. They, they wisely went their own way, allowing for time to cool tempers. We don't know exactly when or how, but we know that Paul forgave Mark and reconciled with him. Amid controversy and conflict, do you find ways to achieve forgiveness and reconciliation, or do you let your pride get in the way of making things right with your brothers and sisters in Christ? <clears throat> it's funny. I was dealing with a conflict in the church. And I'll never forget telling one of the parties, when this is all over, I know there's going to be a need for reconciliation. I just want that gap to be as small as possible. We have to, we have to act that way. We have to. We have to for the sake of Christ. Paul ends this letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. With your spirit. The only way Philemon is going to act and do what is right is by God's grace. That's it. That's it. And by God's grace, we will do the same. Brothers and sisters, a couple of sermons ago, I told you that we cannot overemphasize the complexity and the seriousness of this situation. It was a very real threat to the fellowship at this church in Colossae. And it was a very real threat to its ministry to that lost city. I have even said that this church was probably made up of many slaves. So, so this conflict was a very real threat to the gospel in that slave community. I'm convinced that the church of Colossae not only survived this situation, that Philemon did exactly what he should do. I'm convinced that he did it, but I'm not, I mean, he did what was right. I'm not only convinced that they survived, but I'm convinced they thrived. I believe this because they were a church marked by Christian fellowship, made up of authentic believers. Measured by genuine forgiveness and reconciliation and motivated by confident obedience. Here's a promise. This church will endure controversy. 
and conflict. Grace Bible Church will endure controversy and conflict. Actually, let me say it this way. We have endured, we are enduring, and we will endure controversy and conflict. That is the nature of gospel ministry. That is the nature of a church, this church or any church, that the church, the true church in this world. You see, that is true because we are embroiled in a great spiritual battle. And as we navigate this world, as we navigate these, these problems, these, this, ba- this battlefield, we need to be a forgiving church because there's going to be conflict. My prayer for Grace Bible Church can be found in the words of the Apostle Paul to the church of Colossae. Bear with one another. Forgive each other. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive your brother or sister in Christ. If the Holy Spirit has spoken to you in the preaching of this series, and the preaching of this sermon, if you have any questions, if you're convicted in any way, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, First, I would encourage you to repent and turn to Him. I I would encourage you to come to Christ. I would encourage you to, to look to the cross where Christ died for your sins. I also would encourage you to contact me or or one of the leaders, Vey, or speak to a mature Christian who can help you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord, as we have finished this sermon series, as we finish up today, Father, we pray that we would be a church that forgives. Father, that we would be radical, radical in our forgiveness. Lord, we have been forgiven of so much. We have a debt that we can never repay. It's a debt of love. Father, may we forgive others as you have forgiven us. Father, may we not hold grudges, bitterness, anger, May we let all those things go. May we be willing. May we be motivated. May we be confident in our forgiveness. Lord, may we trust in you and you and you alone. Father, may we place our hope in you. In Christ's name, amen.